loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Marissa Nathan Gerson. Marissa's writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Playboy, Tablet, Modern Loss, Lilith, and Beyond. She was the inherited trauma consultant to Amazon's Emmy-winning show Transparent, and the author of Ask Your Yenta, an advice column that Bitch Magazine named the top 10 to watch in 2010. The founder of KenMeansYes.org, a consent advocacy organization, she speaks nationwide on inherited trauma, consent education, and religious sex education. Born and raised in Washington, D.C., Marissa lives in a purple house on an amazing block in mid-city New Orleans, alone. And her book that we'll mostly be talking about today is Forget Prayers, Bring Cake, A Single Woman's Guide to to Grieving. Welcome, Marissa. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm really glad to have you. (laughs) I have to say that your book, uh, well, I learned to have a sense of humor in the midst of loss and grief. So (laughs) I love to read books about grief that have a sense of humor. I think it just goes together for me. Um, But I also had a few shocks. The first shock I had reading your book, Mm. and we'll get to what got you to write the book in the first place, but the first shock I had was in the introduction when you quoted a chaplain, this is unbelievable to me, Uh, who said to you, when my father died, I fell into my husband's arms. He held me. I still need him when the feelings get hard. I don't think it's healthy that you are alone. How can you possibly grieve this way? I found that the most shocking statement, Um, especially because so many grievers have just lost their spouse. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think what she was arguing was that I was young and I was living alone at the time in the woods in a house pretty far from anyone. I had a 20 minute drive just to get a cup of milk if I needed it. So she was probably advocating for me to have more human company. The framework, however, left me feeling very guilty that I didn't have um, just people in my life that were going to do the work of holding me for me, which I didn't have at the time. Well, and then the other fact is, um, you know, I'm a grief counselor, so I see every permutation of this territory that you and I are going to be talking about today. And many people are actually don't feel supported by their spouses. It it occurred to me reading your book that you had amazing support um, compared with many people who are coupled. So I just want to throw that in in there as well, that um, uh, being coupled doesn't always equal good support. No, I completely agree. I recently went on a date with someone who said, anyone who's single after 30, you know something's wrong with them. And all I could think was anyone that was married before 30 probably also had something. <laughs> <laughs> um, all, these, all these cultural assumptions, you know, as someone who lived most of my life not being able to get married because I'm, I'm uh, a lesbian, you know, the idea that marriage defines 
having a great life is has always been crazy for me. But <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> anyway, let's let's skip back to the beginning because yeah. um, you've obviously had um, you know a lot of a lot of very meaningful periods in your life. Um, you know. Uh, kind of working with marginalized groups and um, having religious training, all these different parts of your life. But it it feels to me like the loss of your father was maybe the most, you can tell me, but one of the most crushing um, experiences. I don't know if I would even call it crushing. I, I feel as if a lot of what I went through in my life had no explanation or I'd be upset and didn't understand why. And there was something about losing a parent where you are given permission to be upset by a lot of people for a, for a good period of time. So, good point. <laughs> so in some ways it was a time for me where I went through a lot of periods of grief that weren't recognizable or understandable to other people, but the death of a parent, everyone empathizes with. So in some ways I felt more loved and more supported the waves of just sort of the tremors of loss have been really difficult to navigate. And at the same time, even in that really hard, really difficult navigation, there was always an explanation. Like, I, I mean, for people out there who are depressed or have any kind of mental difficulties um, if, under the sun, sometimes having a reason to be sad is a little bit easier than when you're sad and you don't understand why. So I always, you know, I went through really, really rough moments alone and, I still go through them. It's not like it ended up. This book is just one year of grief. I, you know, I'm at the two year mark and I have all kinds of new problems with missing my father and wanting him around. The only thing is, is that I know what's wrong. I miss my dad. You know, I know what's wrong. Right. And I, there's something and it's, that that's comforting to me that I understand that I know what is wrong with me right now. Yes. I, I, I certainly, uh, for myself, didn't find grief the most the most um, terrible of moments in my life, but I had, I had had a long time to learn to surrender to it, so that helped me. And yeah. it sounds as if you got there pretty quickly, um, you know, the surrender part. And maybe it it relates to that that you it made sense to you that this was huge, and um, you were then able to reach out and connect. And it's not the same as depression, is it? No. And I, you know, I, I moved to New Orleans from Massachusetts where I lived alone. Like I said earlier, <clears throat> I lived in the middle of nowhere by myself in a place with a small winter population. And I do think I got trained in those three years of winter, you know, New England winters in a certain location by the ocean is every, you know, it's not, it's all, it's not very easy. The winds are intense. It's dark at 4 PM. And I lived alone in a way that's more alone than I've ever been. And it taught me, <clears throat> you know, you had to stay ahead of your feelings or you're in trouble because when it's between you and you and you're fighting, you know, your thoughts or something that's going to sink you emotionally, you've got to stay one foot ahead of it. So I think I had some training to sort of observe myself and be ready for what was coming a little bit so that I wouldn't, I couldn't let myself sink too far because then who's going to take care of me if I'm by myself, you know? It's that's interesting to me because when I sometimes I tell my own story to myself um, through grief, through moments of challenge that I that I had to learn from, um, 
you can only see that in retrospect, I guess, but I can see how every experience did prepare me, and that's what you're talking about. But the experience you had of, it, it, it was so poignant for me that your father helped you move to New Orleans, yeah. and then almost immediately um, went from completely healthy and cognitively present to not um, can yep. you talk about that, you know, yeah. being in a brand new location and and having your father take a pretty steep and quick dive out of health? Yeah. Well, for the year, I would say like six months before I moved, my dad realized that I needed some support in taking a leap. Like I was really, um, I had been doing really deep trauma work and speaking to synagogues and community centers all over the country about inherited trauma. And also I did a lot of rape prevention work. So I had been just going pretty low into a space where I was trying to lift people up. And I, at a certain point lost me and he brought me back to myself and was like, you need a place that's yours. You need to, you know, we need to move you somewhere where you have more support in terms of creativity and uh, academia. So he really, it wasn't sort of what our regular way was for the two of us to be a team, but we became sort of a team to get me on the right footing because I'd been giving a lot to others, but suddenly myself was sort of flat out. And I moved to New Orleans, I think it was September 5th, 2019. And my dad had some weird things that I noticed, but never in a, you know, when you don't anticipate a parent dying, you don't think, oh, that might mean he's sick. Oh, he might die. Like never did it occur to me I really don't think I thought much about my father actually dying. I think that it's like right. a, that's like fantasy world, not reality. And um, so I got to New Orleans and moved into the house and he was going to come for the weekend and he stayed where he was. And then the next week, immediately he started falling over. He lost his cognition. He had a pretty severe brain disease that came out of nowhere and it wiped him out in two months time. So um, yeah, he, there was something magic about him leaving the world as he had set me up to be on my own. And it just felt really like I was, and I, something about death has made me much less magical thinking, much more like cut and dry, but it felt nice to have something that he helped establish as I, it's almost like he was holding me a little bit as he did as he left this world. Yeah. It, at, at the very least, a uh, uh, grand serendipity. Grand serendipity. I like it. <laughs> and and I also, you know, maybe your previous work uh, or something about your point of view. Uh, what what many people do find difficult is kind of demanding some attention for our grief. You know, reaching out. Um, uh, even people who have people. When, when they come to me as a grief counselor, they often say, I don't have any support. But it's actually, they won't reach out for the support, right? Um, I'll well, say, oh, you, have, you don't have anybody in your life who cares about you? you know? And they'll say, well, there's this person, but I wouldn't ask them because of blank or blank. That didn't seem to hold you back that much. Yeah, I mean, I don't. It's funny because now I'm actually much more uncomfortable than I used to. During the writing of this book, I was going through it the year before I wrote the book. I went through all of that. So I asked for everything from others and that was the self-preservation knowledge that I had. Sorry, that, that got all sort of funny worded, but I, 
it's hard to spit it out because I lived alone and for many, many years before I moved to New Orleans. And there's something about living alone where you, you know, you, if you don't source your company in the evening, you don't get company. If you don't make a lunch date, you don't get a lunch date. If you mm. don't ask for company, simply you don't get it. And especially living somewhere where I lived in the woods, where if I didn't reach, if the people knew that I was there and I had reciprocal relationships, but everybody was sort of in their pod long before COVID, they were in these sort of winter pods and you'd have to sort of break into their pod to get company. And I, because I potted alone, um, I, so I, I was very adept at asking and asking and asking. And when I got to New Orleans, it was exciting because everybody was new and I could say, okay, I'm struggling. Do you want to be part of this new community where we're going to revolve around like, you know, practice and remembrance and people were excited. Now it's harder for me because mm. You know, it's not, you can make, for me, it's easy to, t- I could go anywhere in the world and take a new risk, but sometimes it's harder. And that's why maybe in marriage, it's harder sometimes too, to ask for support when you're already in a groove in a relationship, when it's already like, here's what the give and take looks like. Then it's almost much more difficult to say, hey, can I break our balance and ask for more? Where in <laughs> fact, there was no balance, there was nothing. So I asked for what I needed and it, it made for some lovely relationships at the time and it's, you know, it's, I, I'm not, it's, it's almost like death in some ways, like six months after, maybe a year after, like, you know, 15 months later, asking became harder because my heart was a little bit more wounded at that point. Like I, you, you, of, you almost couldn't help it maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny because earlier, most of the asking in this book happened before my dad died. And I think after he died, to be honest, it was a lot more difficult at mm. that point because uh, my heart was hurt. My, you know, I lost my, sure. lost my parent. My dad left the world and I probably a part of me felt like I got left. And that was, it's a lot like now to be like, hey, I'm grieving. And it feels like passe two years later to be like, oh, you're still grieving. Um, but, but it was very easy when I got there to do it. And I do think there's an art you know, I can preach to others. Sometimes I struggle, but I do think there's an art to asking for support. And I think absolutely, it, it absolutely. just knowing what you need. And I think that that's part of what this book is about is that I really think women are taught to shelf their needs. Like I really, um, and women is loosely just defined, you know, I'm in the gender binary of this country. I do believe that women are expected in some way to care for other people. And what happens when you want the care and when you need to put yourself first and that's part of what asking is about is saying, Hey, like if we're looking at the heteronormative couple, Hey husband, like I know that I'm supposed to do all these things in our roles, but I need to break the role and ask that you help me now. Cause I'm suffering. That's really hard to do. For sure. And yet ironically, I, I was, this is a, this is an odd segue, but I was thinking about when my oldest child, she went to a Catholic high school just because that's the one she could get into, Catholic girls high school, and she had to vet her friends. Um, she had to find people who would accept her family. Um, you know, two moms, divorced, you know, the whole works. She would, if she was interested in someone as a friend, she'd come out to them right away. Yeah, uh, She'd find some way to tell them. And if they didn't have a good reaction, they were off her list, kind of. So she had a, a sort of pre-vetting thing. And it occurred to me that that grief can be a little that way, too. Maybe you're not still asking, 
but the people who who could respond to, hey, I'm struggling, wouldn't you kind of have a better chance that they can show up? If, yeah, I mean, if you get to the point of asking. Well, you also have to be realistic about how the emotional capacity of such a person exists, right? Yes. So, um, there's people who I've asked for support and when they sit in front of me, they're terrified of my pain and that doesn't do, be- doesn't do good for them or for me. I think no. part of asking for help also is, and it's hard. I sometimes mess up with this, like really knowing, okay, this friend is this capacity, their emotional capacity is this, this is what they're going through. And, and sort of tiptoeing in, because sometimes we expect people to show up when they literally have no reserve. They, right. I'm, I'm thinking about my best friend. Her wife died the year before my wife. Like, if I want to talk about my 25-year-old grief, you know, wh- what it's like for me now, she's my go-to. Absolutely. Because we, we share that in common. And then, and, but even that can be shocking. Like, I, I, rem- I did... Um, I did a seven day meditation retreat. I write about it in the book. And I remember when we left, they gave us an exit strategy and the exit strategy basically told us, Hey, when you get home, you might want to share this with people and they're not going to understand because they weren't there, but you might go yeah. to the grocery store and everyone at the grocery store understands or whatever, but <laughs> right. but a, you know, we just don't know who people are. So we want, we want to know people, but their capacities really ebb and flow just like ours do. Absolutely great time to go to our first break. Listeners, you can find links to my website, social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Marissa Nathan Gerson, you can go to marissanathangerson.com. That's M-E-R-I-S-S-A-N-A-T-H-A-N-G-E-R-S-O-N.com. Be back soon. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening. 
listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Marissa Nathan Gerson about her book, Forget Prayers, Bring Cake. Marissa, I'd, I'd really love for the listeners to kind of hear the voice of the book. You know, our writing voice is always so um, uniquely different. I, I would say you're compatible with your writing voice, but I wonder if you could just share uh, a bit of the book with us. Sure. I'm going to start by reading from chapter three. Um, chapter three is called Co-Pilots, Making Your Friends Your Spouse, which is sort of what we've been talking about this far. Um, Be measured and fortified, laugh at nothing discernible, writes Akila Oliver, a toast in the house of friends from the poem Wishes. The doctor called, my brother David told me in October, just two months after I arrived in New Orleans. Dad has seven months, 10 maybe, My father had just finished two weeks in a brain rehab unit specializing in brain swells. Rehab did nothing to improve his condition. In fact, he was atrophying. After weeks of tests, it was this lack of improvement with treatment that helped the doctors finally put two and two together. It's not encephalitis. It's a brain disease called Creutzfeldt-Jakob. One in a million get it. My dad was terminally ill with a degenerative and rare brain disease often confused with a strand of mad cow disease referred to by the same name. My father was going to die. The night I learned he was fatally ill, I was invited through friends of friends to the Irish Channel for a weekly red beans and rice dinner gathering. I knew no one. In an unfamiliar living room plastered with photos of local parades and filled with people, performers, academics, waitresses and writers, I was a mess. I couldn't put my phone down, a faux pas at a community dinner. I was getting texts from home and was in a steady panic. This was a new phase of grief, all its own. The host softly called me into the kitchen. I watched him take cornbread out of the oven on a skillet, then pour butter and honey over the top. He somehow pried my phone away from me as I confessed that I was having a rough time. I told him that my father was sick that he was dying, being alone with someone, being able to admit what was really happening calmed my nerves. We can just pause there, I think. Mm. Yes. Um, it, it is a paradox, isn't it, that just naming, uh, you think it's going to make you more scared, or some people do, not me anymore, but <laughs> yeah. you know, some people do. But actually, there's something so soothing about just saying it and having someone not try to make it better. Uh, I think that's a key feature. (laughs) You have to just get the right to say it and have someone say, oh, or whatever, but not try to cheer you up or do anything really. Yeah. And I I think also just saying it sounds like simple, but there's an, I, I do think that a lot of people end up feeling really ashamed and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me why it happens. It happened to me too where you're suddenly still sad and you feel like you're supposed to not be sad. And there's this kind of idea of supposed to like work will give you this many days or not, or no days. And that should be okay. Sad should last this many days. And I know I felt sort of scared to tell people that I felt sad and that I felt 
you know, just, it was deal. It was sad. Isn't even the right word that I was grieving. And there were two reasons. Like one, I didn't feel like sometimes I didn't feel like I had permission inside of myself to be sad and to be mourning and to be just dealing with the pangs of loss. And so saying it out loud and having someone else be like, Oh yeah, that's real was really soothing because it took the shame away and it made me feel less um, just embarrassed that I was still hurting. And then the other thing is about someone else saying, oh, I hear you and not trying to fix it is I didn't like telling people because I was so worried that they would be harmed by knowing I was suffering because they were so frightened of their own parents dying. So if I said, oh, I'm crying because my dad died and I can't get out of bed. They were like, oh God, I don't ever want to go through that. That's like the thought I was so worried that they would have. So I would hold it in. And there's something just incredible about saying, hey, I'm still grieving. And someone saying, oh, that must be so hard. Let's, mm. let's, let's get some cake. You know, <laughs> All the pictures of cake in your book are so delicious, literally. <laughs> You know, because there's this little little piece of your book that I thought really captured this this idea of um, people trying to comfort in a way that isn't comforting. I, I'm going to read it. When this first wave of grief appears and you call in the emotional support group, troops, yes, it's okay to call them in. Everyone and their mother is going to think they know what you need. People had so many words for me. You need to rest. You need to pray. You need to work out. You need a drink. But the fact is, I just needed to listen to myself. I already knew what I needed. People to listen, hugs, quiet and caring company, food, fun, and distraction. Um, to, to me, this, this line, but the fact is, I just needed to listen to myself. The just, that is the hardest thing for people to do, to learn to do. I, I feel I benefited from 10 years of learning to listen to myself during my wife's illness. I was really good at it by the time she died, but yeah. a, a lot of people are not. Well, you probably got good at it because you were practicing because you had to. And I think some people, I mean, we, yes. some people's lives just don't give them the scenario where they need to be dropping in like that. And it can be really, it can be really hard when you, you know, I think about friends who become new mothers who never had time alone. Like I have a lot of friends that worked jobs and had roommates and just never had empty time. And as a writer, I always had time. And I empathized a lot with new moms who were like, uh, there's no structure. There's no schedule. There's like, I don't know what to do. And I think with grief also some people, and there's no judgment, there's no way or no way. I had a, an odd, like, you know, twenties and thirties where I had a lot of space to feel and create and sort of wander. And a lot of people don't have that. So to recognize your feelings can be just almost impossible for a lot of people. And that's part of why I added a lot of these, um, list making in the book like there's you know the book has the the memoir narrative and then after every chapter it was important to me that for those people a lot of people just can't read anymore we're you know we're so on instagram etc and also if you're grieving it's sometimes really hard to focus so absolutely make sure that every chapter has these sort of little sound bites at the end and a lot of the suggestions are make a list like what are the five things you need today what are what do you think you want but you're not allowed to ask for and I think that that's a practice for the people that don't have practice like you did of saying, oh, me, I, self, what do I need? Rather than, oh, groceries for the kids, like do this for myself, do this for my work. It's like, no, me, me, me. And there's some, the culture, it's like an ironic America because 
We're supposed to not be selfish, and yet we're supposed to be sort of selfish capitalists at the same time. So it's very confusing. And I think for women especially, um, for women especially, that self that self first part feels like it's like breaking code. And I really want people to put themselves first. You know, there's a there's a place in your book where you just list all the things that happen to people in grief. Such a helpful list that is, um, because I one of the most common things I hear as a grief counselor is, "You're going to think I'm crazy," which yeah. of course is ironic for me. <laughs> Because I'm not going to, you know, I'm the least likely person to think any of these things, you know, disorientation, confusion, not being able to find things, bad sleep. Sure, go ahead. Okay, great. Well, so and for me, this list was so important because I was having, you know, I sort of weird comparison. Where I came from, there was a really high incidence of Lyme disease, and. Lyme disease has some really weird symptoms that no one knows about. But if you know, you know, like you get these wake up in the night with no sleep. And once you knew that, you didn't feel so weird. Once you knew, oh, it makes sense that I'm having memory issues. So I felt like similar to when I had Lyme, when I started grieving, my nervous system, my brain, my body, like everything was going berserk. And I just thought I was crazy. And when I told someone, she said, no, that's called grief. And I was like, what? (laughs) And on on like some meta level, there's a part of grieving that's literally like, if I once, I'm not a drugs person, just let everyone know. I'm I'm like rare. I'm very straight edge. But in my early twenties, there's something called, I forget what it even was, salvia. It's like some, like it's some plant thing, but I had no idea where I was, where up or down was, what day of the week it was, like what, what was like, I had some existential crisis for 24 hours because of it. And I think grief is like something like that where it just throws you into a complete reorganization and like it sucks and the medicine in it is that when you get reoriented you have you're like a new person and that's mm. that's the hope is that not not like we should all grieve so we can have this beautiful experience but we have a choice hey you know, if it's if it's going to come we may as well you know ride it to the next place bingo yes all right so I'll <laughs> Um, okay, so it says here, uh, here, I'll read you the paragraph before too. Death and loss and grief can be hard on the body. I had digestive issues, extreme fatigue, pain everywhere. When death and loss tear at the normal fabric of your life, expect to exhibit a peacock display of new feelings and experiences for days, weeks, months, and for some even years to come. Here are a few symptoms that are normal for people experiencing shock, trauma, and loss, the cocktail of turmoil. Disorientation, forgetfulness, an inability to focus, lethargy, crying, deep sadness, numbness, aversion to group gatherings, anger at the world, anger at the dead, anger at the living, strong urge to punch things, terrible sleep, massive insomnia, sleeping 15 hours, dreams that feel like torture, night terrors in general, food issues, lack of hunger, 
desire to eat the whole cake, et cetera, weight loss, weight gain, hypochondria, desire to never, ever leave the house again, a fixation on your own death, a fixation on everyone else's mortality, flashbacks, abrupt and unexpected crying spells, confusion about what is real, memories that suck the life out of you, clinging to memories that deeply comfort you, severe desire to protect the dead's legacy, memory, spirit, object hoarding, severe desire to beat up the dead for dying, conflicting emotions, a wrestling with the loss of someone you love and anger at things left over from when they were alive, a sense of helplessness, loss of trust, loss of trust in people, God, time, space, America, an urge to have sex all the time, a complete lack of interest in sex, bouts of inappropriate laughter, absent-minded grocery store visits, heightened interest in astrology, renewed thirst for drama, fury for late-night adventure, loathing and avoiding bathing, higher incidence of eating breakfast all day. <laughs> and, of course, we could add, like, for instance, anxiety. Uh, you know, that's... There's a whole book about that that one of my former guests wrote. You know, there's there's so many things that are practically predictable that shock every single person when they experience them. So yeah. I really appreciate uh, that, um, you know, just sort of a lay of the land. I feel as if a lot of what I end up doing is just saying, oh, yeah, that's normal. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah. That's mm -hmm. familiar to me. Yes, I've seen that before, you know, <laughs> just over and over again, because people do feel so out of their ordinary, so out yeah. of their, you know, kind of uh, out of their box. And yeah. you, re you referred to 10 years of practice, which was literally true because my, my wife was never well. So we were continually practicing, and um, actually I learned to, to take care of myself during that period of time yeah. much better, because if I didn't, everything fell apart. Yeah. So, I mean, you know. Self-care is such a, <clears throat> it's like a sort of bougie term sometimes, and I'll say that for me, a lot of the methods and practices I learned for caring for myself occurred when I was inside of really fortifying spiritual community. Like I lived in Boulder, Colorado for two years and I went to this Buddhist school called Naropa University mm -hmm. and, I, and I practiced at this incredible Shambhala center that was this gorgeous meditation center that was really clean and well-practiced and everyone was a better meditator than I was. And it really helped me grow and it helped me want to care for myself. But I will say that it's not an easy thing, you know, now that I'm not in as much spiritual community and I'm not always supported in that way to remember to do certain things is hard. And I think people need to also just be really gentle when, you know, I know when I was grieving, I felt guilty a lot because I couldn't, I just couldn't do everything I was used to doing. I couldn't, sure. I couldn't remember to meditate. I couldn't go to yoga. I couldn't, you know, dumb stuff like my, my physical therapy stretches that were so important for my well-being. And I had, there's like this practice of compassion that is almost annoying and very vital for women, especially, I think, to come back to being like, wow, there's a lot on my plate. Wow, I am going through something so difficult. Wow, hey, it's okay. And finding this balance between sort of staying in bed and avoiding the world and, and taking action is so hard. It's, you know, for some people it isn't because they don't get the choice to get, you know, some people don't get to lie in bed ever. Um, for but sure. I, I there's a there's a class aspect to how yes. much space you have to yes. meet your needs in grief. But yes. 
to me, they they can be recognized even if they can't be met, and that and that does help. Mm-hmm. I feel as if um, you know we're still as far as I'm concerned, in the midst of a pandemic here. Yeah. And um, that's been like a, a deep reminder of the skills that I have because they came right to the fore. Yeah. Um, you know, I found myself saying, oh, sad. Oh, unable to move. Oh, you know, just noting where I was yeah. and, not, and not trying to change it, but it would, it would move because I noted it uh, in some way. Yeah, I love what you said about recognizing. Like, we may not have the power to change or meet our needs, but to recognize them. And I think that is a really, I think that in a nutshell is a lot of what I'm pushing in this book is because a lot of people meeting the need is almost too hard because they fall apart at that point or something. Right. But right. And, and people I've worked with who, for instance, have very demanding jobs that, that they're given no leeway, uh, I'll suggest you know, if you can't, if you see you have a need and you can't meet it, you can say to yourself, I'll be with you as soon as I possibly can. It, it really helps uh, yeah. to communicate with our, instead of saying, go away, I don't want to feel that, you know, I don't want to just say later, later. Or, or I know that like for some, there's layers and layers of trauma and racial trauma otherwise, and just remembering that um, later can be like in 10 years and that right. Just being like, I love yourself, even in this hell, I love you. And that can be sometimes enough. Yes. Let's talk more about that generational trauma part. And also, I'd like to talk a little about dating while grieving in this final segment when we come back. Um, Listeners, you can go to weatheringgrief.com, my website, or the Good Grief host page. To find Marissa Nathan Gerson, you can go to M-E-R-I-S-S-A-N-A-T-H-A-N-G-E-R-S-O-N.com. Back soon. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. 
To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Marissa Nathan Gerson about her book, Forget Prayers Bring Cake. And um, Marissa, before the break, um, I said I really wanted to talk about what I consider to be such a deep part of the book. Obviously, there's humor. We've talked about that. But there's also a depth around the way that generational grief and um, all the other griefs in life uh, jump on board in any grief. And um, it was interesting to me, you know, your particular intersection with that um, being, you know, not too many generations back, um, the Holocaust being big in your family story and um, how to ha- how to maintain spiritual practice uh, within that. And, you know, we could spend many shows talking about that. But I wonder if you could share a bit about how you layered all those together for yourself in the time of losing your father. Sure. Um, it's funny because I try to stop using the, the H word because it so many people sort of like Hollywoodize what happened. And as I've gotten older, yes. I see part of my sort of grief process has been to realize what really happened, which is that my family was murdered. And um, that is the fact that, you know, people, human beings were rounded up and stripped naked and killed. And so that helps me to just keep it real. Cause I think it's so easy for me to make this into a massive fantasy of some horror rather than a reality. And it was real and real people did it. And for me as a adult Jewish woman in America, it's so important for that experience to help me understand white supremacy and understand what's happening in this country and writing the chapter on compounded grief. uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about that because I was angry. I was angry when my dad died because he's dead, but I also got really angry that history was repeating in so many ways. And I'm not black, I'm white and I'm a white American and I, it comes with all the privileges therein. However, my family was racialized um, by a system that paramounted whiteness and hated them for not being whiter and killed them for it. And doesn't mean I understand the experience here, but what I do know is that it's real. And I know that the trauma of racism in the United States is real and ongoing and horrifying. And when my father died, I wanted to talk to him about it. When George Floyd was murdered, I wanted to talk to my dad. I wanted to say, look, like, These systems of government that hurt us are hurting people here. And I want that to stop. And I felt just angry that he wasn't here with me. And so writing, you know, we my editor at one point was going to cut this chapter because I was having a really hard time delivering it properly. And my, I was just, you know, I think part of me just didn't want to feel it. You have to, yes, for me to do each chapter, I had to revisit and feel those feelings. And so this chapter was very academic. He's like, it doesn't work. you got to cut it. And, so the last thing I wrote in the whole book was this chapter because I knew it had to be there because for me, grief was something I knew before my dad died. And I knew it because my family's always been grieving because we have so many people that were killed in our line that 
and it's not that, you know, my father was born in 1945 as his parents were um, sort of just surviving slave camps. So I, um, yeah, I wonder if I could just read a little part of the compounded grief chapter to you. Absolutely. Okay. And I'm so glad you didn't cut that chapter. Me too. It's like- I, I mean, it's just so important to put that layer, you know, for all of us, really. And well, then yeah, everyone has a history that is, is, is shaking them in this moment, no, no matter who we are. And some, some, I think the point of that chapter, though, is that some people, their history is being repeated. And that is the part that is almost impossible to get out from underneath. And I wanted to respect that. But the light, you know, I don't, I, I am in a position of privilege, even though I came from a position of oppression. And a lot of people are continually being oppressed, even with a history of it. And it's very hard to breathe um, when that's happening. So mm-hmm. this is from the, this is from, let's see what chapter this is. Chapter 10, compounded grief, fire and brimstone. A lot of people experience grief and then more grief and then even more grief with no relief. Loss for so many is not just about the one occurring in this moment, but the many that preceded this moment, the many losses never mourned, never properly grieved, never given space or time or resources to be grieved, never laid to rest. This loss plus losses from the past may be aggravated by other deaths, other crimes, other blows to the nervous system, sometimes daily. This is compounded grief. When grief sits on grief and more grief, horror on horror, past and present, can leave people emotionally destabilized, highly anxious, and steadily unnerved. Especially when the horrors experienced are ignored, racially motivated in current time, not just past, played down, erased by the society you live in, and then repeated in new forms. To have the space to speak of pain is a privilege because those able to talk about it are the very people who can. This is the time, this moment of grief and layers to acknowledge history, to acknowledge the current moment and to acknowledge recent losses. What you remember is real. You know, I was just um, included in a chapter by uh, Malkia Devich Cyril. Um, mm-hmm. She's doing work on um, uh, grief in social movements, mm-hmm. uh, grief for activists. It's, it's an amazing chapter. And it and it connects with this that um, that our grief grieving capacity actually helps our action ultimately, and um, I think that's true. That the, to recognize the grief that's inherent in all these generational losses helps actually movement. <laughs> yeah. um, of course, I, I believe that because I believe that about grief in general. Um, but sometimes it can feel so overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and so having a way, a way to do that, um, I hope that continues to develop over time. But I'm really glad that you talked about that. And I wonder about my, – my dad was a civil rights worker, not the same as what you're describing. But mm-hmm. with everything that's gone on the last few years – I had a very mixed experience. Like on the one hand, I really wanted to talk with him. I really wanted to share perspectives on what was going on. I missed him so much. And at the same time, I was so relieved he wasn't alive to witness it. Yeah. 
uh, and and it was like um, neither could be ignored. Both were so strong in me. Um, and I wondered if you had any of that yourself. Well, part of being in my family was that like nothing, I didn't, I, you know, I wanted him to witness it. <laughs> I wanted mm-hmm. my dad here. Mm-hmm. I think there's something different, like there's a different caliber in some families and different, who knows if this is true, but my family just knew that the most disgusting possible behavior could happen from the get-go, you know, like my, my father's uncles and aunts and his, you know, everybody in his family, except for like the five that survived was literally put in a room and gassed to death like animals and um, buried in a mass grave. So for us, Nothing, you know, I got very sad at different points in history and very shaken up, but there was a knowledge in my gut from the beginning that human beings are capable of disgusting things. And so for me, I didn't feel bad. I didn't want to shield my dad from it. I was like, come back, like, come back. Let's like, Uh it was more unilateral for you. (laughs) Yeah. Like, let's just suffer together through this. You need to be here to do this with me. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think also I just, I wanted to, there was some, there was something very quiet and he was a loud guy, but there was something between us where we just both knew that it, there's a certain amount of work that I think a lot of people don't want to do that I think I did and that he just was born with of dropping into the amount of pain that's sitting there in your family pool. And I did a lot of, that was what a lot of my meditation work was, was sitting with, oh my God, we're, we're all in so much pain. I didn't know, I didn't realize how bad it was. And that my dad kind of knew also. So sometimes between us, there was this sort of like solidarity of knowing that, you know, I remember one time I went with a neighbor when I lived in Colorado, he took me to a wedding um, in the, in near Telluride in a, in a mountain town. And I didn't realize till I got in the car that he comes from evangelical roots, which is totally fine. I'm, I'm like, a, I love prayer and I love the Bible and, but as we drove, his friends with their Bibles in the back seat started telling me that I was going to hell uh, as, and I was in a car drive because I was Jewish and we we're driving deeper and deeper into the like absolute middle of nowhere. And I was really, Oh scared. my God, that's terrifying. Yeah. But I, I the, the person I call and I get, and I got to my fam- my friend's house, his, his parents' house. And there were Bible, like, um, like preacher Bibles everywhere, not just regular King James. It was something else. I don't know what it is, but I was worried because if that's what they believed that I was like going to hell, that they didn't see me as a person. And I called my father and I was like really scared and crying. And I said, you know, I've been driven into this community that doesn't honor me as I am. And he said, listen, anyone that you ever meet in an, that has an absolute, that gives you an absolute truth in that way, you don't have to even worry about what they have to say. He's like, it's, that's a sign of weakness. He said, don't worry you're fine. And there was just this, he knew what to say. Like he knew how to navigate. He knew, he knew how to recognize oppression. He knew how to stand up for it. He used to take my sister to protests as a kid. Um, there was no, he, you know, as he got older, he stood up for a lot for dreamers and immigrant rights because he recognized his own self in the landscape. And because he came to the United States and had to have, um, you know, a really harrowing arrival. But anyway, I, f- I missed my dad for just what he knew. Like there was some quiet right. mutual understanding. And that's what I wanted was like, just sit with me, dad. And like in this pain and not, you know, other people in my family who I love dearly, if I mention pain, they want to summarize it or fix it. And my dad would just be like, Ooh, it's terrible. Like he could just sit 
in the grossest thing which, which you and know it. And I, and I want to refer, before we get out of here in a couple of minutes, to the incredible joy at the end of Forget, forget Prayers, Bring Cake, because there is something, at least for me, there's something about being able to dive into pain that liberated my joy. Like, I have, I have bigger joy. I also yeah. have deep, deeper pain, but um, bigger joy. And I, I felt your book captured that very well. If we had another hour, I'd love to talk about, you know, dating while grieving well, and, and lots of other things, but well, we I only have, have a couple of minutes left. So. <laughs> let me just jump in and say that the, let, let's bridge it. How we do, the dating while grieving section and the joy at the end don't necessarily need to connect, but I want to just give a quick summary that Dating while grieving echoes everything we've said so far, which is now that you're suffering through loss, it's so important to recognize what's important to you and what you want and to set your standards and your boundaries. And when we date, um, oftentimes I know as women, and again, women is defined across the gender spectrum of whoever qualifies themselves as a woman is great for me. But in the binary that America constructs, women are asked to put their needs aside and if you want to have a fun and healthy relationship after someone dies, you can't do that anymore. Can't and, do it. Yeah. And, and so I think the joy at the end for me was like, oh, like I'm going to, there was like a point where I started to take care of me and to join in with, with what moved me. And I think everybody is going to like fall apart when somebody dies. And then at some point, it might not be right away. And then it's almost like your hair comes out in all directions and then you braid it back and it's a new braid and it might meet you to the <laughs> side and not down the middle. But I just want to like vouch for a new normal, a re a reemergent of yourself. And it might not be a person you recognize and that's okay. Yes. <laughs> it never goes away and that's not all bad. <laughs> Marissa, I really want to thank you for being here today. I've enjoyed our conversation. Yes. I, I'm really honored. I, I'm grateful for you and also so grateful for, the wisdom you accrued through those difficult years that you're sharing it with everyone else. Thank you so much. Listeners, go to marissanathangerson.com to find the book and everything about Marissa. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.